All right. Good morning again. Please take out your copy of God's Word. I hope you're excited about God's Word and open it to John chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. You can find that on the bottom of page 887 in the Pew Bible. We come today to one of the most important chapters in the whole of Scripture, containing the most known verse in the whole of Scripture. We are on holy ground, so I need help. Pray for the preaching of John 3. This will take us a couple of weeks. But there is one metaphor that dominates the opening of John chapter 3. It's pretty simple. And that metaphor is birth. Last week, if you were here, you celebrated the 60th anniversary of the birth of Pastor Ed Moore. Well done, by the way. I was with Ed and Anna on Tuesday, and they were just overflowing in their thankfulness and their praise for Woodside Community Church. Um, So thank you for, for welcoming them and receiving them well and blessing them. But his was a birth that 51 years later would go on to prove to be very important and very formative for my life. An even more important and formative birth for my life happened 37 years ago tomorrow. Um, Just saying. A birth that would (laughs) utterly change and transform my life for the good. Happy birthday to my wonderful wife back there who's already looking down and already mad at me a little bit. Um, But I couldn't resist. Sorry. Births are important. Births are life-changing. Ed's birth went on to change my life. Uh, My wife's birth went on to utterly change my life. Births are obviously life-giving. I've had the privilege of being present at four births, still holding out hope for a fifth. I'm still getting the jokes in there. I'm just joking, I'm joking. But it was the last of those births, it was Tess's birth, that I remember the most clearly, and it's not just because it was the most recent. Now, again, I I love births. I hear they're fairly traumatic affairs for the women, but I don't have to do anything. It's a couple of days off. It's like the salad bar at Long Island Jewish is fantastic. If you've ever been there, go get the salad. They have a Thai dressing there that's amazing. So I love just the whole process. Um, But again, I, I understand it's pretty hard and painful for the mom, and it's fairly traumatic for baby, too. And now, listen, we know that life begins at conception. It is greatly ironic that for those who like to kind of poke fun at us for having faith or accuse us of denying science, they have to utterly define and redefine, deny and redefine the science when it comes to life. We have won that battle definitively. Science has proven that at the moment of conception you have a new and unique life, a new genetically distinct human person. Life begins conception. So so don't forget that. Uh, I'm using the metaphor of birth as the introduction of that life into the world. And when that baby is first born, you're first looking for signs of life. You're looking for the evidence of life. You're looking for that first cry that breathes life-sustaining air into the lungs. Man, I don't know how long it was. I, I think it was very short, I'm sure. It was probably only a split second. But with Tessa, There was a moment right after she entered into the world. She was a different color than the other three. I remember that. She was purple, and for a very brief moment, she didn't cry. I don't know how long it was. And again, Tabitha's a doctor, Ruth, they understand how this stuff works. But for me, I didn't know what was going on. And whatever the distance of time was, it was long enough for me to start to panic and start to worry. Wait, what's going on here? What's, What's wrong? 
And thankfully, that panic and worry was interrupted by eventually that wonderful cry. Right There was the life coming in the lungs. There we celebrated the new life that God has blessed us with. Right, so there was a birth. That birth brought life. That life then showed itself, and that life then changed our lives. Right, birth begets life. Right, so you are here in this room, obviously. You are breathing, obviously. You are alive then, obviously. But Jesus says to you this morning, you must be born again. Now, you have been born. <laughs> You're here. So you have been born. That implies that you are alive. Jesus says, though, you must be born again, which implies that you are or you were dead. Okay, so what is Jesus talking about? What really is this new birth that is required for life? That's what John 3 is about. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks. 2,000 years ago in a prison in the Greek city of Philippi, a jailer asked the one question, the most important question, the question that we should all be occupied with and should be able to answer and articulate, what must I do to be saved? Acts 16, verse 30. And how would you answer that question? Can you answer that question? Well, Jesus answers it here for us. You must be born again. Do you know what that means? Have you been born again? J.C. Ryle writes of this text, A man may be ignorant of many things and still be a Christian, but if a man is ignorant of the things that we find in John 3, then he is on the high road that leads to destruction. All right, so let us protect ourselves and prevent the possibility of such an ignorance that can lead to, instruction, to destruction. So this is really, really important. Birth is about life. Jesus says there is a birth that you must have to live. So life is on the line. Got four points for us this morning. One and four will be long. Two and three will be fairly short. Kind of constructed as a sort of, of logical argument. Point one, main idea, Jesus' main point, you must be born again. Now, something logically follows from that, though. And that's point number two. If you must be born again, well, that then implies that you must be dead. Point number three, well, if you are dead, well, then you cannot cause yourself to be born again. It's pretty obvious, right? Point number four, though, it is the Spirit who gives life. So let's see what this life is and how this happens. Let's read this text first and make sure that whatever I'm saying is coming from what God has said here. I'm going to read for you from John chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 8. There's just no way to do the whole thing. We're going to pause the conversation at verse 8, and we'll come back next week. But pay attention, because this is what God wants to say to you today. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. If you would bow with me, let's begin with a word of prayer. 
Gracious Heavenly Father, I believe in the Holy Spirit that we have just read about. I believe that it is that Spirit who gives life. I believe that he gives that life uh, through the reading and the teaching and preaching of your life-giving word. Uh, so we ask now um, that this would be a time uh, where life is given. We ask now that you would work through the preaching of your word. Father, please help me to preach this wonderful text well, uh, to do it for your glory, to do it for the good of myself, my family, my church. Father, please help the preaching of your word, help the hearing of your word. Father, show us Jesus Christ and bring life uh, through him. We ask and we pray this now in his name. Amen. Point number one, verse three and seven, you must be born again. Remember repetition, repetition matters. Eight times in this short passage, we have the word born used. Generate, ganao in the Greek. And so it's just not hard to figure out what this text is about. But we first must set the stage and see the context in which this word is so frequently used. So let's start with verses 1 and 2 and let's start with Nicodemus. We mentioned this two weeks ago, but I want you to notice again the connection between 3-1 and the verse right before it. Chapter 2, verse 25. Look at those in, in parallel together. We looked two weeks ago at this faith in Jesus that is not saving faith. Verse 23 of chapter 2 says that many believed, remember, pastuo in the Greek, in his name. But then verse 24 says that Jesus did not entrust which is actually the same Greek word, pastuo, in them. So the verses, in effect, say they believed in Jesus. Jesus did not believe in them. Right? There is a belief in Jesus that Jesus does not believe in. There is a faith in Jesus that Jesus puts no faith in. Theirs was not a saving faith, but some sort of spurious faith. It trusts in the signs, not the Savior. It sought Christ, not to get Christ, but for what it could get from Christ. So this faith sought Christ as a means to ultimately only seek self. So they believed in some way, but they were not saved. And so I called this damning belief. And we started to sort out what is at the heart of this damning belief that does not save. And John 3 ultimately is going to give us the answer. Now look at verse 25. It says, Jesus did not believe them. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Ignore the three, ignore the chapter break, read right on into verse one. Now there was a man, right? man, man, man. Nicodemus is the specific example and elaboration of what was generally stated in 23 through 25. He was such a man. He was such a one who had this spurious Faith. 23 says they believed when they saw the signs. 3.2, Nicodemus says no one can do the signs that you do. Right, so Nicodemus has seen the signs. He believes the signs. He cannot deny the signs. But he does not know what the signs signify. He has not experienced the truth behind the signs. Or the one who is the truth behind the signs. And so Nicodemus is the specific illustration of the general problem we saw at the end of chapter 2. He is the example par excellence of those who believe in Jesus but do not know Jesus. And so this conversation that we just read is a brilliant exposition and expose of the nature of false faith and then the only solution to such a false faith. But first, let's consider Nicodemus. Because his identity and the description of his identity are of great significance. Main idea here at the beginning. 
Nicodemus was better than you. He was far better than me. Look at how Nicodemus is described. First, it tells us that he was a Pharisee. We know the Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day. The Pharisees were the exceedingly conservative and moral guys. They were, in a way, the religious and conservative reaction to what they saw as the secularization and liberalization of Israel at the hands of the Greeks and the Romans. The word Pharisee means even to to divide or to separate. So these guys were the purists, the separatists. They were the holy ones, the keepers of God's law. They were the conservatives. The Pharisees enjoyed great respect. Everyone looked up to and and, and, and honored the Pharisees. But we're also told that he was a ruler of the Jews. That would mean he was part of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was basically the ruling council of men that oversaw all aspects of Jewish life. So a a political position. So he was powerful. He possessed a position of influence and authority. Later in verse 10, there's more. We'll see Jesus call Nicodemus the teacher of Israel. It doesn't mean probably like he's the only one or necessarily the main one, but he's one of the main ones. He's in a very prominent position, a position of great influence. He was well-educated, intelligent, a student and teacher of the scriptures. And so in verse 2, it is this man that comes to Jesus by night. What's the significance of night? I'm not entirely sure. Some people say this is definitely like a bad sign, right? Night in John is generally symbolic of, uh, of evil. Um, so maybe the symbol is, well, Nicodemus is currently in darkness. Maybe he's just coming at night because this is the only time he can talk with Jesus. And it's, it's just really hard to say for sure. I wouldn't read too much into the detail of the darkness because I'm not positive. He comes. He says nice things to Jesus. We have Nicodemus, the teacher, calling Jesus rabbi, teacher. Again, some sort of respect. He recognizes the signs, he says. He says this must be um, some sort of sign that God is with Jesus. Again, it, just, it all looks pretty good. And so main idea here at the beginning. Nicodemus was better than you. Nicodemus was a good man. It would be hard to come up with a comparable figure today. I just take the first two. He had great political power, but also great moral excellence. That just doesn't seem to happen right these days. That seems to be increasingly rare. But then on top of that, he was extremely well-educated, responsible for teaching others. So religiously, politically, educationally, socially, Nicodemus checks all the boxes. He has it all. He then is the perfect example of the fact that you can be moral, you can be honorable, religious, well-respected, you can be a good person, you can even be part of the community of God's people and actually not be part of God's people and actually not be saved at all. Because it was to this good and great Nicodemus that Jesus says, you, even you, must be born again. And so Jesus' response begins there in verse 3. And it's masterful. In just a couple of words, he sweeps away all that Nicodemus is, all that Nicodemus stood for and stood on, and he redirects Nicodemus to what really matters and what he really needs. Religious, ruler, teacher, power, authority, influence, privilege, standing, wealth. You must be born again. What? I, just, I love how Jesus wastes no time. I love how he has no patience for flattery. I'd have been kind of like, yeah, you know, thanks. Rabbi, that's pretty good. Jesus, nope. He doesn't care about any of that. He cuts right to the chase. Nicodemus has said to him, we know. Jesus basically says to him, you you do not know. And he gets right to the point. You must be born 
again. This, Nicodemus, is the thing that matters. And this is the thing that matters, church. I started reading uh, two weeks ago, rereading Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections with, with David and Henry and Henry's sister. This is the very first line. This is how Edwards opens his masterful work. He says, there is no question whatsoever that is of greater importance to mankind and that it more concerns every person to be well resolved in than this one. What are the distinguishing qualification of those who are in favor with God? Those who are entitled to his eternal rewards. Or, same thing, what is the nature of true religion? And wherein lie the distinguishing notes of that virtue and holiness that is acceptable in the sight of God? All he's saying is there's no question of greater importance. What must I do to be saved? What is required for relationship with God? What is the nature of true religion? And how can you recognize it? That's what that whole book is about. Or, for our purposes, what is the nature of the new birth? And how can you recognize it? That's what Jesus is teaching here. And he starts off first with the absolute universal necessity of the new birth. It's not optional. It's like he picks the best person and says, this best person must be born again. And so if the best person must be born again, if Nicodemus must be born again, then you must be born again. So I want all of us to use this text to seriously consider this question. Have we? Because as I've been saying, there is much conversion confusion in the church these days. And we've got to clear this up. That confusion cannot be here. We've got to biblically and boldly explain what God's word says about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because there are millions and millions of people who would identify themselves as Christians, but who, according to God's word, prove that they are not. But, man, I even know, like right here, I'm on dangerous ground, because even hinting at the hesitation or question, any hesitation or question of the validity of someone's profession of faith is like the one unforgivable sin in many churches uh, these days. But it's quite biblical and necessary. Paul commands us in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And he's writing to the church. Peter says in 2 Peter 1.10, Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. So again, the desire behind this, it can't be to be mean-spirited. It can't be to be arrogant. The desire should be love. Because according to Jesus, life is on the line. According to the previous passage, it's possible to be deceived about whether or not you have life. That life that is found only in Jesus. That life that is found only in being born again by the grace of God. So it should be because I love you. Right? I want to warn you that maybe your life doesn't give any evidence of new life that the scripture says that it will. And yet, there's many of you that I'm not talking to, of course. It's, it's hard in the same sermon to both disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed at the same time. My desire is not to disturb those of you who are truly believers, those who are struggling, those whose faith is often small like mine often is. But at the same time, there are many that desperately need to be disturbed. And so we've got to look at this because Jesus says you must be born again. And therefore, it is necessary for all of us to seriously consider whether or not we have been. Right? So heed the words of Spurgeon. Okay, always heed the words of Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, beware of presuming you are saved. If with your heart you do trust in Jesus, then you are saved. 
But if you merely say, I trust in Jesus, it does not save you. Here's why the sinner's prayer is so silly. It doesn't save you. If your heart be renewed, if you shall hate the things that you did once love and love the things you once did hate, if you have really repented, if there be a thorough change of mind, if you have been born again, then you have reason to rejoice. But if there is no vital change, no inward godliness, if there be no love to God, no prayer, no work of the Holy Spirit, then your saying, I am saved, is but your assertion, and it may deceive, but it will not deliver you. Why would we not regularly consider this most important of things? More Spurgeon from elsewhere. You may be rich, or you may be poor, but you must be born again. You may be intelligent, you may be educated, you may be talented, but you must, you must be born again. Playing off Spurgeon. You may be liberal, you may be conservative, you may be Republican, you may be Democrat, but you must be born again. You may be a social justice warrior, you may be an, I don't know what the opposite of that is, and everything is cultural Marxism labeler, I don't know. Uh, you may be black, you may be white, you may be European, you may be Asian, you may be whatever, but you must be born again. Point number two. This one will be short. Maybe not explicitly coming from the text, but it logically follows from what Jesus is saying. It's implied. If you must be born again, well then, you must be dead. Don't forget the metaphor. It's simple, and it's beautiful, and it's brilliant. Birth is about life. Birth begets life. In saying that Nicodemus needs to be born again, Jesus is also then saying that Nicodemus is dead. Wait a second. He is obviously very much alive. He's standing there before Jesus. He has just walked to Jesus, questioned Jesus, spoken words requiring breath, which indicate life. Jesus says, though, you're dead. And it's not that complicated. Right? We, we know what's going on here. Look at verse 3. Maybe this will help to draw this out. There's two things there in verse 3. Jesus, in a sense, just kind of cuts Nicodemus off and cuts to the chase. Pay attention to two things. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, we need to come to that word, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let's start with that word. Two important concepts. He says it again in verse 5, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And this is interesting because this is very um, not John-like. Or again, I like the word, but it makes me sound snooty. This is not Johannine language. We read kingdom of God twice there in verse 3 and verse 5. But we will find that phrase nowhere else in the rest of the gospel in John's writing. John does not use this phrase except here. The other three gospels use it all the time, again and again and again, not John. Uh, well, each author is perfectly kind of complementing one another, seeking to emphasize different things. John briefly picks up the language of the other gospels, kingdom of God. A kingdom is just where a king is, right? A, king is where, a kingdom is where a king rules and reigns. And now we know that God is king over all. He sovereignly rules and reigns over all. But we're talking here about God's saving reign. He is the king and he is the God of life. Therefore, where God savingly rules and reigns is where life is found. And that's the language that John prefers. We'll see it when we get to verses 15 and 16, repeated twice. Whoever believes in him has eternal Life. So the kingdom of God and eternal life are the, are the same thing. And this is confirmed for us in Matthew 19. Verse 16, you know, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus, says, What good deed must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus goes on to explain to his disciples in verse 24 that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Right? 
eternal life, kingdom of God, same thing. So John begins by picking up the language of the other Gospels, kingdom of God, and then he shifts his focus to the possession of eternal life, which is what we're talking about, right? Birth is about life. We're now talking about eternal life. And so look at verse 3 again. Now look at that word again. You see that little number one there? You see the little footnote? Well, follow that footnote down to the bottom of the page where you read, from above. The Greek is purposefully ambiguous and can mean both again and from above. Okay, that's technically true. But basically, every other time we find this same Greek word, it's translated as from above. Look down at verse 31, even in our very chapter. Chapter 3, verse 31. He who comes from above, same word, is above all. Every other time John uses this word, it means from above. And so, yes, it technically can mean again, but it, I think it's very unlikely here. Why do we stick to the translation again? Probably because the King James first chose to translate it this way 400 years ago, and it's just become so familiar and so precious to us that we're hesitant to change it. But why did they, 400 years ago, choose to translate it as again? Well, probably because of verse 4. Right? Look at verse 4. Nicodemus is confused. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about and says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Right? So a second time, or in other words, again. So it's not terrible, it's not technically wrong to translate the word again, but I think from above is more accurate and more helpful. What does it mean to be born from above then? Well, it's simple. It means to be born spiritually. We see this in verse 6. Look at verse 6. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Physical. All John means there is physical. And that which is born of spirit is spirit. Spiritual. And so this then explains Jesus' meaning. Yes, you may be physically alive, but you also need to be spiritually alive. You must be born from above. And if you must be spiritually born, then that implies that you are spiritually dead. You see, we are a, a, a composite, a dichotomy. Man has two parts, flesh and spirit, body and soul. You can be physically alive and yet be spiritually dead. In fact, that is the condition, the Bible says, of everyone Apart from Christ. I have never seen the show, The Walking Dead, so I'm not, it looks terrifying. Don't watch it. I'm not recommending it. It's not a recommendation. I've never seen it, ever, an episode. But that's a pretty good description of the spiritual condition of everyone around you apart from Christ. The dead walk among us. In Luke 9, 60, Jesus says, listen to what he says. Have you ever picked up on this? He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. You see what he's saying? Leave the physically alive but spiritually dead to bury their physically dead. Jesus calls the people doing the burying dead. And so you are in this room and you are either dead or alive. And the difference is not whether or not you are physically breathing. The difference is Jesus. And in a room this size, some of you are sitting here and you are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once Walked. Why is that? Why sin and why this death connection? Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. God, as the creator of life, is life. Sin is a rebellion against and a rejection of God, the God of life. Right? Therefore, sin is a rebellion against and a rejection of life itself. So the wages of sin, what you earn with your sin, and 
all have sinned, what you earn and deserve is death. So we were, all of us, born into this world spiritually dead because of sin, separated from the God of life. Birth is about life. Don't forget the metaphor. By far, uh, we've been very blessed uh, as a couple, Melissa and I. Um, we haven't had a lot of, you know, people have had this honeymoon period and got it really hard. And there's this bet. God's just been very gracious um, to us. Um, by far, uh, the two most difficult things that Melissa and I have experienced in our 12 years of relationship uh, are the two miscarriages that Melissa suffered. I oh, awful, awful uh, for both of us. But again, the dad can never quite fully comprehend what it is that the mother experiences. There's just no way. Um, and a miscarriage is a death because there was a life. And church, death is the worst. Death is a loss. Life is good. Therefore, death is bad. And you, just, you really feel that in a miscarriage. Both of ours were fairly early, which in no way minimizes the pain. A death is a death no matter when it happens. But we've never had the experience of a stillbirth. Right? Nine months full of pregnancy, nine months with that life, growing that life, knowing that life, going through the pain and suffering of delivery for there only to be death. And I, just, I cannot imagine the difficulty of that. Okay, but not to minimize any of that, not to be crass, okay, there's a very real sense in which every physical birth, every beginning of a new life, is at the same time a spiritual stillbirth. It is a bringing into the world that which is physically living, but spiritually dead. Again, we rightly recognize how awful physical um, stillbirth is. We need to also recognize how awful spiritual stillbirth is. And again, being careful, not trying to minimize anything, I think it's actually worse because I believe that those physical stillbirths go on to spiritual life by the grace of God. Which is why this is so important. Which is why you must be born again. Because apart from Christ, you are spiritually dead. And it is this fact that must inform and define our focus and mission as a church. Has to. Yes, it is tragic, the direction of our country that is heading in culturally. Sin is always bad. Sin always separates. Sin always dishonors God. So we should be opposed to sin and long for it to cease. We should be opposed to the cultural relativism of our age, the sexual fluidity, the celebration and codification of sexual sin. But we also know that the reformation of morals or political progress or whatever ultimately does nothing to help those who are spiritually dead. Yes, it is tragic that injustice plagues not just our country, but the world. We should be for justice, biblically defined. But we also know that achieving earthly justice and equality, solving poverty, whatever that thing is, whatever it would be for you, ultimately that does nothing to help those who are spiritually dead. You must be born again, which means that you must be spiritually dead. Point number three, quicker. Well, yeah, this is just obvious, right? If you are dead, you cannot cause yourself to be born again. Maybe not explicitly in the text, but I think it's there, and it logically follows, and it's important. It's simple. Dead doesn't do. Right? Dead cannot do. You must be born again, but you're dead. Therefore, you cannot make yourself or cause yourself to be born again. You are spiritually dead. Therefore, you cannot do anything that is of spiritual significance, anything that would bring about spiritual life. 
And here's why we must keep the metaphor Jesus chooses in mind. We don't get to define or determine how all this works. We don't get to define how we want or think that this should work. Jesus compares the thing that we must have to a birth. Well, again, as I've said, I've witnessed four of them. And do you know how much effort those four little girls contributed to those four births? Zero. None. In fact, all they did was impede the effort and make it more difficult. At your birth, you were entirely passive, and your mother was extremely active. Grammar time. Verb, voice. Remember what that is? You remember your grammar? Verb, voice. Voice of a verb describes the relationship between the verb and the nouns around it. Voice is telling us who is doing the action of the verb. The mother, subject, birthed, verb, the baby, object. That is the active voice. The subject is doing the action of birthing. Passive voice. The baby, subject, was birthed, verb. The subject, the baby, now is no longer active, but is acted upon. The baby is passive. That's the passive voice. The subject is acted upon. Eight uses of the verb born in our passage. Every one of them is in the passive voice. Birth is not something one can do for themselves, but it is something that must be done for them. Birth is not something active. Birth is something passive. Birth is not something that you do, but something that is done for you. If you are dead, then you cannot cause yourself to be born again. You must be born again. Bad news. You cannot do anything to make yourself born again. Good news. Point number four. I've broken the pattern of the points on purpose. The disruption should draw your attention to this final point. I've just stolen this and lifted it straight out of John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. Look back at the text. Look at how Jesus qualifies and clarifies. Three times he tells us what we need. Three times he gives us a little bit more information. Look at verse 3. Unless one is born again, or again, born from above, I believe. Now look at verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Now, again, I think basically every translation gets this wrong. Uh, That sounds really arrogant and obnoxious, and I know. Let's be very clear. The translators of your Bible are much smarter than me, but they're not perfect. And this one's pretty simple. Again, we know in the Greek we don't have capital letters, right? They didn't capitalize different letters like we do. And when you see there, look at verse 5, when you see there the Spirit in the English, in the Greek... There's no article. There's no the there. It just says spirit. The 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 is supplied. I think it's more faithful to the original to translate this as unless one is born of water and spirit. Lowercase s. There's no the. What does that mean? Some will say, oh, it's baptism. It's not baptism. Uh, There's no mention of baptism anywhere in the context of this passage. It just doesn't fit. And we've actually already read this. Remember, John loves his Old Testament, and it seems that he is most likely referencing here the promise of the new covenant, which we just read in Ezekiel 36. Turn back there if you would like to see it, page 724, Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to read in verse 25. We just talked about the covenant of church membership. Uh, We think churches and people, Christians, covenant together because that's what God does with us. He demonstrates his love to us by covenanting with us, binding himself to us. So Christians will be then those who desire to covenant uh, together. We love as he first loved us. But our covenant of church membership is based on that gracious covenant. His love is a covenantal love. It is a love and a commitment to do us good. 
What good? What does God promise to do for us in this new covenant in Christ? Ezekiel 36, verse 25. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Oh, what a wonderful promise that is. Again, metaphors. They're simple, but they're beautiful. Water. What does water do? Water washes. That's what water does. Our sin makes us filthy, dirty, unclean, unfit for fellowship with holy God. God himself in his gracious covenant promises to wash us, to cleanse us. That's the symbol of the water. Verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. You see, we're spiritually dead. God himself promises to give us a new spirit, a new heart. This is the new birth, promised hundreds of years before Jesus comes to perform what God has here promised. To be born from above, John 3, 3, is to be born of water and spirit. John 3, 5, which is the promise of the new heart of the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, which is to be born of the spirit. Back to John chapter 3, now looking at verse 8. You see it there in verse 8? You see where you see the Spirit in verse 8? Well, the article is there in verse 8. And so verse 5, it's just Spirit. In verse 8, it's the Spirit. So to be born from above is to be born of water and Spirit. How does this happen? By being born of the Spirit. For it is the Spirit who gives life. And that's what God says he will do in the next verse of Ezekiel 36. Verse 27 says, and I will put my spirit, the spirit, within you. See what God is promising to do? You see how gracious this is? How amazing this is? You created a problem with your sin. And that problem is your death. And since you are dead, you cannot do anything about the problem that you created. But God can. And God does. The gospel is the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to solve our sin problem. The gospel is that God provides the very thing that God uh, requires, that, that God creates what God commands. He says you must be born again. You cannot do it. So he does it for you and in you. Just like your mother was the sole active agent behind your birth, God is the sole active agent behind the new birth. God causes the new birth. A couple of verses. Just jot them down. You won't be able to keep up. Uh, Philippians 1, 6. We use this kind of for the, to focus on the end of what it promises, and it's beautiful, but don't miss the beginning. Philippians 1, 6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. See, God begins the work in you. You don't begin the work, and then God responds. Hey, I, you did this thing. Okay, good. Now, now, we, no. He begins the work. He does it. James 1, 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth. You know what that word is in the Greek? Birth. He birthed us. He brought us forth by the word of truth. Right, so it's God who grants the new birth. And that's an important verse because notice that he, he does it through his word. Right? It's the spirit as it works through the word. Right? It's the spirit working through the word that gives life. 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. You see, God causes the new birth. 1 John 5, 1. This is so important. Get the order. Here's why grammar is important. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Catch this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ 
and much of our theology and what we have raised with, we would insert, will be born again. Right? Everyone who believes will be born again. Believe, then be born again. That's not what the text says. That's not what John says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. You see that? He who believes, believes because he first has been born. So we're getting to John 3.16. We're probably going to spend a whole week on John 3.16. We're getting to the most famous verse in the Bible. One of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But we've got to get the order right. This comes before that. Birth comes before belief. What God does comes before what we do. God initiates. We Respond, Or as we've been putting it, regeneration. Right, you hear the word there? That's the Greek word, genao, birth. Rebirth, generate. Regeneration precedes faith. Right, you do not believe, and then you are born again. We've already established that you can't. You are dead. Dead people can't believe. Dead doesn't do. The wonderful news of the gospel is Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive. Together with Christ. See, he did it. By grace, you have been saved. That's the new birth. That's what it means to be born from above. It is a gracious work of God in the hearts of his people. You were spiritually dead. Your sin caused a separation from God. Your sin created a death debt that must be paid. You created a problem. God provided a solution. Jesus Christ who came to live the life his people were supposed to live and die the death that his people deserved to die. Jesus lives the life and then gives up his life for us in our place. And then it is the Spirit, the Spirit of life, who gives life by taking uh, and applying what Christ has secured for us. It is the Spirit who moves us from spiritual death to life, who gives us this new heart and mind and causes us to be born again. God does it, not us. Right? We've had Tessa was born, Melissa does the work, not Tessa. But do you know what Tessa did eventually in response? Oh, she cried out in response to her birth. That's faith and repentance. God graciously gives us life. He does it. And then we respond to that life by repenting and believing, by turning from sin and self to Savior and Lord. And then do you know what else Tess did in response? Do you know how that life manifested itself? By completely changing and transforming our lives. Because that's what birth does. That's what Jesus is saying in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Wrapping up, verse 8. John's playing with words again. Wind and spirit are the same word in the Greek, pneuma. He says, you cannot see the wind, but you can see its effects. Right? You can see its movement in the leaves and the trees that it's creating. You can feel it on your face. You cannot see the spirit, but you can see its effects. You cannot see the new birth happen in an individual. It's a mysterious, sovereign, gracious work of God. But you can see its effects. Life. New life. Because birth begets life. And life always shows itself. The effects of that spirit-given new life are undeniable and unmistakable. You were dead, but now you're alive. There is no more dramatic difference than death and life. Surely we understand 
that such a change is going to show itself in some way, right? Surely we understand that the experience of such a change is going to result in great gratitude and great joy for the grace of the great God who gave us life when we deserved only death. Surely we understand that there um, has been, where there has been none of that change, there's, there's no life. It's just simple. It's just logic. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know how Peter puts it in 2 Peter 1.4? I would be nervous to even say this if it wasn't in Scripture. Um, but Peter says it, so we can say it, because it's true. He says that we become partakers of the divine nature. We don't become God. He's still creator, we, we creature. But he's making us like him. Romans 8, 29, he's conforming us into the image of his son, making us like Jesus, the best being, the perfect person. We are becoming like that by his grace, like him. What a change that would and should be. Again, no one never be perfect in this life. I'm regularly frustrated with myself and my slowness and my stubbornness. Yes, we struggle, but we're new. We were dead. Now we're spiritually alive. And church, life is so good. I was talking with someone who's just someone that I care about who's maybe imminently facing death. And it made me very sad. It was just hard to hear and talk about. And it made me sad. But it was also one of those conversations where you're supposed to be the one doing the encouraging and you end up getting the encouragement. Because the only way it's not just despairingly sad is because of the life that this person has and the hope and the peace and the promise that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that by the grace of God, clinging to that promise and, and holding to that. So here's this thing that when you're faced with, it's the worst thing. It's the end of everything. It's cessation. It's cut off. It's over. I don't understand how anyone faces that apart from Christ and apart from the promise of the gospel. Death is the enemy. Christ has transformed that enemy for this individual. He has transformed that enemy, enemy for, for those who are his. And so we see it and we're confronted with it and we're still really sad and I'm still wrestling and struggling with it and mourning is good and right. Um, but, oh, there's great hope. Right? There's great hope. But church, I, it just kind of puts things into perspective, right? Who cares? The Tar Heels laid an egg Friday night and lost, and we're terrible. Who cares? It doesn't matter. Right, what, are we, what are we living for? What really matters? Jesus gives this metaphor of birth because life is everything. Life is everything. Do you have it? And life is so good that it demonstrates itself. It shows itself in newness, in new love and affections and purpose and, and behavior how could it not? Because what we're claiming is that we have been brought into intimate relationship with the living God. And contact with Christ must cause change. And it does. We believe in him. We, we trust him. We increasingly obey him. We love his people. We live for him and not for self. That's the hardest thing to learn. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's, it's about him. 
But these are the effects of the new birth that God graciously gives to all who are his. And it's so wonderful and good. I was so dead for so long, and it was so bad. But by the grace of God, I'm alive. I did nothing to deserve it. And it's so wonderfully good. And you know what that does for me? Uh, when I'm in my right mind, it makes me happy. Right? The grace of God makes us glad. The new birth makes us new. And the fact that it's all him. Here's, what, here's why your theology matters, church. It's all him. You keep clinging to any shred of the I believed and then I was born again. Or I did this thing and my faith is the decisive determining. Any shred of that and you're missing what is so wonderful and good and beautiful. It's all him. It's all grace. I did everything that I could to deserve eternal death and hell. And he gave me life because he's kind and he's compassionate. And therefore, this thing that is death, which is the worst thing, I don't have to fear because Christ has already faced it for me. A new birth makes us new. Look at what God has done when we deserved death. So you must be born again. All of us, all of you, everyone, have you been? You cannot do it. But what we see here in this text is that he can. He can. Call out to him. Cry out to him. Come to him. He is kind and he is gracious. He is the one who saves sinners. He is the one who gives new birth. And again, as Jesus asks Martha, he says, do you believe this? Let's pray that you do. Let's pray that you will. If you would bow with me, let's, let's close our time. Father, my words have been many. I pray that your word would be front and center. Thank you for Jesus speaking uh, so clearly in his commands in this passage. Uh, Father, I thank you for the kindness of these commands. You did not have to tell us what is required. You did not have to provide for us what is required in Jesus Christ. But you have done both of those things. And so we thank you. Father, help us to see how kind and compassionate you are to us. Father, divest ourselves of any notion of our own goodness. Divest ourselves of any notion that we have done anything to play any role in our salvation. And help us to see the beauty of your sovereign grace. Help us to see the glory of the fact that it is you who save sinners. It is you who grant the new birth to those who deserve nothing but death. And so we thank you for your grace. Father, I pray that that grace would utterly uh, transform us. Uh, forgive us for how apathetic we are about these eternal uh, things. Uh, forgive us for how cold we are about the things of God. Father, arrest our hearts and our minds with your glory, with the beauty of Jesus Christ, and, and with your kindness and your, your compassion. Um, Father, for anyone in here who does not know you, um, Father, make them aware of that. Um, Father, make them aware of their need. And make them aware of the wonderful provision of Jesus Christ. Father, grant them new birth and new life. Um, Father, grant them repentance and faith. Pray that even today could be a day um, when sinners um, come to life um, by your grace. Um, so, Father, please ask now that you know, we ask now that you would uh, do your work uh, by your spirit through your word. And, and we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.